Well, first of all, thank you so much for being on the Border Chronicle podcast. Can you introduce yourself and talk about your work, especially recently for the Biden administration? Sure. So first of all, thanks so much for having me. Um, I'm currently the director for the Central America and Mexico Policy Initiative at the Strauss Center at the University of Texas at Austin, which is a, a very long title. Um, I'm back there after spending five years there previously, and I took a, a short hiatus this year to join the Biden administration as a senior advisor for migration policy at the State Department. Okay. And can you say your name also? Oh, my name is Stephanie Loitert. Okay. So what did you do primarily for the Biden administration? So when I joined the administration, I joined the Monday after inauguration. It was uh, a time when everything was just getting up and running, personnel was coming in, and there was a lot of plans coming out of the transition period to, to implement, to really rethink migration policy, to address some of the Trump era administration policies and to imagine uh, a new policy that could be put in place generally and also at the border. And so my one of my first uh, big items on my portfolio was the uh, wind down of the migration of the migrant protection protocols. Um, that is the MPP, also known as Remain in Mexico, a two year program uh, under the Trump administration. And uh, the Biden, Biden had campaigned against this program uh, all through 2020, and it was one of the first things that his administration did was to stop putting people into this program and uh, to bring back the people, um, kind of to wind it down and uh, to bring back the people who had been returned to Mexico through MPP. Which is a big, a big project, and, and it's a mouthful to pronounce it again. It was called or it is called the Migrant Protection Protocols, which is a, a, a misnomer, <laughs> but um, it, it certainly, I think, Remain in Mexico is a little more apt. Yeah, so I want to kind of uh, go to the beginning of when this program was put into place, and I know that it involves a secret meeting in Houston uh, in a hotel room, right? <laughs> it does. And I'm hoping you could talk about how this how this agreement came to pl place, because it's kind of strange and bizarre. Well, I'm relying on reporting uh, done uh, in Border Wars, uh, the book, but they report in great detail how MPP came to be. And yes, it was through a bilateral meeting in a Houston hotel where they talk about security guards kind of securing the area, and you have Mexican officials and U.S. officials meeting in this secret space to really hash out uh, what kind of a new vision for what this program would look like at the border. Um, and this is something that has never been done before. Um, and, and what they came up with, <clears throat> MPP or Remain in Mexico, is a program whereby um, asylum seekers and other individuals who are apprehended at the border or who turn themselves into border patrol or even who cross at a port of entry and seek protection, they are uh, processed, their, their cases are put into U.S. immigration courts and then they are physically returned to Mexico to wait in Mexican border cities for the duration of their, their court proceedings, um, with them just crossing into the U.S. to attend their court dates and then returning back. Um, so that is, that is what they, they agreed to in this meeting in Houston. And then the details were really hashed out over the following months, uh, 
kind of everything being negotiated down to which ports of entry, and that was an ongoing conversation, which nationalities. At the end, Mexico came out and said this was a unilateral U.S. imposition. Um, but really what you can see from the negotiating period from that meeting in Houston onward is it really was a back and forth. So this agreement, uh, when, when was it hashed out in this hotel room? So the first meeting was probably mid-2018, and then throughout the rest of, of 2018, you see the kind of back and forth on the details. I think it's November 2018 when Nick Miroff at the Washington Post reports that this uh, agreement is imminent, that it'll be coming out soon. Um, and then it moved pretty fast after that. It was announced Shortly after, you see the first guidance going out in December, and then officially the program is launched in January 2019. Um, and it was only launched in one port of entry, and it began in San Ysidro across from Tijuana, and then over the following months uh, spread west across the border. And, and how did it fundamentally change how people apply for asylum in the U.S.? Well, before MPP, if you were an asylum seeker, and you arrived at, in Tijuana and you crossed at a port of entry, you sought asylum, and you were a family, you would be released uh, into the interior of the U.S. and allowed to go to a community where you might have family or relatives, immediate family, friends, some type of support, and you would uh, begin your asylum case from that U.S. community. Now, the difference with MPP is you would lodge your case, but it would go into a border court. So in Tijuana, it went into the San Diego federal court system. Um, and then you would be returned to Tijuana. Now, most people do not have friends or, or family in Tijuana. Uh, it's very difficult to uh, get a U.S. lawyer from Tijuana. Um, if you were living in a community in the U.S., you would register your children. Your children would go to school. Um, there would be a system for you to gain work authorization through your asylum application. Um, and these services, education, employment, were not really guarantees in, in Mexican cities. So you're still in limbo waiting in Mexico to see how your case plays out. And, and how long can this take? Well, it was supposed to only take a few months, um, but as the number of people put into MPP began to increase, and ultimately there were over 71,000 people who were put into this program, um, you begin to see court backlogs, and you begin to see, you know, six months between hearings. Um, and then, of course, if you didn't have a, if you went to your court hearing, you didn't have a lawyer and you wanted more time, it would be pushed further. And so you had court proceedings that were going on for well over a year, maybe a year and a half even, especially if you appealed. So this was not a short period of time that people were living in these Mexican border cities and trying to make a life. Who's applying for asylum and are people treated differently depending on where they come from? So who is put in is any Spanish speaker from Latin America except Mexicans and with the inclusion of Brazilians. It included all families and all single adults. It did not include unaccompanied minors. And there were supposed to be carve-outs for specific cases. If uh, a 
if, if a child was sick or if an adult had a severe disability, and really if your injury or your disability was not imminently threatening life and limb, I think is actually what the guidance says, you would probably be put in the program and returned to Mexico. Now, whether or not people were treated differently, not quite through a institutional process, but when you look at outcome data, it does look different by nationality. So if you look at the, the data on uh, who got legal representation, Cubans and Venezuelans have much higher rates of representation than Hondurans, Salvadorans, and Guatemalans. And this carries over into, if you look at the outcomes of their cases, um, it's, I think it's 730 people so far, very small, it's 2% of all finalized cases, received some type of asylum relief. And of those 730 cases where they received some type of protection, 85% are Cuban or Venezuelan. And they're only 20% of the population in the program in general. And what is striking, particularly striking, is that if you look at percentages by nationality and you compare it, so say Hondurans, Hondurans in the U.S., maybe 10 to 15 percent are granted asylum. But in MPP, it's 1 percent of Hondurans that receive any protection. So there's, it's, it's not just that, you know, Venezuelans and Cubans are the only ones who are, you know, who should be receiving asylum through this program and all Honduran claims are fraudulent. It, it really is, a, for these other nationalities, particularly Central Americans, in MPP, their rates of relief are much lower than if these same people that were in the U.S. fighting their cases uh, embedded in U.S. communities and with access to legal service providers. Why is that? Well, it, it probably has to do with a lot of different factors. Um, the first is that there are, you know, for Venezuelans and Cubans, there are a lot of networks in the U.S. that were providing support. And there's a lot of uh, family members in Florida and Miami that were helping to pay for uh, lawyers that would even fly down and represent their, their clients in court. And so when I sat in uh, at, on an MPP hearing in um in Brownsville, pretty much the majority of Cubans had representation uh, and more than any other nationality. And some of those lawyers had flown in from other parts of the country. Um, but overall, the conditions for people in MPP are really tough. And if you are, you know, if you are a Central American and you return to Nuevo Laredo, for example, you know, there isn't guaranteed housing for you. I mean, if you're a Cuban as well, if you are returned in MPP in general to Nova Laredo, there's no guaranteed housing for you. Um, so if you find a space at a local shelter, great. You may not be able to stay there very long, um, but, you know, it might not be very comfortable. So you have to find money to try to stay somewhere else, maybe a hotel or rent a room. Um, it's often not very safe. I use Nuevo Laredo as an example because it's probably the least safe city. So most people returning back there are going to face a risk of kidnapping. You know, so you're, you're facing these really imminent security risks. You don't know where you're going to live. 
And you might get a temporary, it's called a CORP, which is a social security, kind of the equivalent of the social security number in Mexico. But there's no guarantee that Mexican employers are going to honor that. And then even the most fundamental, how are you going to find a lawyer? And how are you going to translate your legal documents and your asylum application? On every level, survival is difficult. Uh, it, is, it is incredibly challenging for someone to be successful if they do not have an enormous amount of support from outside, you know, from a community in the U.S. that is paying for everything. And even then, it's not even close to a guarantee. That would just make the situation a little bit easier. Yeah, I mean, what I've heard and read is that it's just incredibly difficult to get the information about when your court dates are. Um, the U.S. is not very good about giving that information to people who are waiting in Mexico. Is that true? Well, people would receive their court date uh, before they were returned back. Um, but they, if the court changed the date, you know, there was no way to alert that person. They'd still have to show up at the bridge, at the International Bridge. That was when they would learn if they had court that day or not. Um, and they might be sent back for a few more weeks. Okay. And so you, your primary job was ending Remain in Mexico when you were with the Biden administration. Uh, what did you learn about the program during this process of closing the program down? And were you in Mexican border cities doing this work? No, I was in D.C. Um, so when I came in, there were still thousands, more than 25,000 uh, active cases. So these were cases that of individuals who had been returned to, M to Mexico under MPP uh, and still had active proceedings, most of which had been postponed by the time that, well, all of them had been postponed by the time that I entered in January for nine months, because in March 2020, when the pandemic started, uh, MPP courts were shut down because of, because of COVID. And so people had been waiting, you know, nine months in Mexico with no court dates, no advancement on their cases. Uh, and so when, I, when we came in in January, we began, uh, you know, putting together a um, kind of a program. There was always already the blueprint from transition uh, but kind of implementing this this wind-down program of how we would bring back uh, first those individuals with active cases into the U.S. so that they could be in a U.S. community and continue their immigration proceedings um, in person from the United States. Now, what I learned uh, throughout it is just how many moving parts there were. I mean, first of all, if you think about wind-down, it is a... Uh, incredibly challenging process to find people who you don't have their, their email, you don't have their, um, their phone number, they could be anywhere, and let them know about this program. You have to figure out, you know, who, who's going to be able to come in first? How are you going to rank it? Is it ranked on vulnerability? Uh, is it ranked on whoever has been waiting the longest? How do you figure that out? How do you do this all in a COVID safe manner? You know, where you're not endangering uh, anyone, you're not creating uh, a rush on the border uh, where people, there'd be a lot of people in a small setting. Um, so there were just so many factors. And at the end, uh, there really was a very innovative process in place where you had UNHCR creating a virtual hub called Connecta and individuals could register 
anywhere on this hub, and then they would be uh, receive a phone call from UNHCR. And then eventually UNHCR would give them a time and date and a place to show up on the border. Um, and they would show up at uh, usually right almost pretty much at the port of entry. Um, and their IOM, the um, International Organization for Migration, would provide uh, a COVID test to make sure they were not COVID positive. They would provide a legal uh, kind of legal overview um, and they'd fill out legal paperwork with these individuals before they reached the port of entry and then accompany them to the port of entry where they would be paroled in by CBP into the U.S. And then there is the whole other side of what happened and having, you know, in the U.S. and having uh, NGOs pick them up at the ports of entry and kind of take them onward so they wouldn't just be abandoned once they step foot onto U.S. territory. Um, so it's this whole process. And, and through that process, 11,000 people, more than 11,000 people who with active cases were able to enter the U.S. and to continue their, their proceedings. And so now the Remain in Mexico program is starting up again. Can you talk about why that is and sort of what we can expect? Sure. So uh, I think it was back in April, um, the states of Texas and Missouri filed a lawsuit against the termination of MPP, uh, stating that it had caused hardship for them and that it hadn't recognized all of the um, the benefits, as they said, with MPP. And in August, a Texas court sided with the states of Texas and Missouri and ruled that uh, that the government, that the Biden administration would have to kind of, would have to put back in place MPP. That's kind of the short way of saying it. Um, they claimed that MPP had not been lawfully rescinded, that the termination memo did not kind of fit the procedural uh, requirements. And they also, uh, this court also stated that, that until the U.S. government doesn't have sufficient detention capacity to detain all individuals, they would have to send anyone who they couldn't detain back to Mexico and kind of because of this put MPP back in place. Now, an appeals court has kind of narrowed down that second part on detention a little bit, um, but it did go up to the Supreme Court, which uh, has uh, accepted that while this is being battled out in the courts, the Biden administration has to uh, re-implement MPP. Wow. So at the beginning of the Biden administration, um, there was a really a core border immigration group of experts, including yourself, um, sort of tasked with, I think, undoing some of the policies that were implemented during during the Trump administration, like remain in Mexico. There seems to be a lack of vision towards the border and immigration now from the administration. And I've read about a lot of volatility within the administration of uh, border and immigration people leaving such as yourself, um, and that there seems to be uh, differences of opinion between more progressive members and then more political members of the administration who are worried about the way Biden is going to be hurt politically uh, by these images of um, you know, arrivals of, of immigrants, such as we saw with the arrival of several thousand Haitians in Del Rio um, last month. So I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about what's happening from your perspective within the administration and this sort of ongoing uh, debate that they're having, which is really, I think, creating this sort of um, 
confusion, I think, for border communities, definitely, like what, what is going on? What's, what's, the, what's the way forward? Yeah, so, I mean, I think I'd start by saying that in any administration, you'll always have uh, a lot of different views on any issue. Um, but I do think that you're right about that kind of long-term vision about, it's particularly on the border, of where where we're going to be in several years. And I, I think there, there are probably a couple ideas being floated around, uh, but I, I think publicly, you know, and, and really a concrete vision of, of what the next two, three years will look like, I don't think that's been clearly articulated. And it certainly is difficult if you don't have that, that kind of end point of we're building toward X, we're building toward the border looking like, you know, this articulated vision. If you don't have that and not everyone's rowing their oars in the same direction, you do get swept away by uh, the day-to-day events. And, and people working on these issues, there's so many thoughtful, talented people um, in the administration, in the, in the interagency, um, and they are working <laughs> really round the clock um, because this is, there's so much happening on a day-to-day basis. Um, and the challenge there is that when you're working all the time, when you're working long hours and you're responding to whatever fire you know, is burning that particular day, it's hard to think long-term. There's so much on a day-to-day basis. The numbers were creeping up. The president is getting um, just pummeled about the immigration and the border on Fox News and in conservative uh, media. And, you know, it's, there's a lot, and you have Title 42 up there, COVID, um, Title 19. There's just so many things going on. So that's a, that's a long way of saying um, that, that I think it's, it's always it's always normal to have different views and to have uh, debate. That's part of the policymaking process. Um, but you also want to know ultimately, you know, where you're going. I guess what you're saying is that they are responding to that more immediately when it when it takes a long time really to restore these asylum protections, build back the immigration system, which is completely, totally um you know, like Swiss cheese at this point. So, I mean, basically, you left because you went there to dismantle the program and now they're reinstating the program. Yeah, so I think there is a tension. And I think, again, this is not unique to this administration, but it is on display, particularly on the border, is the the tension between the long term and the short term. Um, and certainly building a policy that rowing your oars in one direction, that's, I mean, that's a metaphor that should evoke a long-term marathon moving of that boat across a large, you know, um, body of water. It's, it's long and it's a lot of work and, you know, it, it takes time. And in the meantime, you're still going to get buffeted by all these political wins. Um, but government is policy and politics. And, you know, the only way you get to build policy is if you win politics. Um, And so, you know, that's political considerations are incredibly important. And political considerations aren't operating often on that really long timetable that you need to rebuild policy. Right. And, and, And going back to the event in Del Rio with all of the Haitian migrants, um, 
arriving, I mean, they wouldn't even qualify under the Remain in Mexico program in the first place, right? Well, they wouldn't qualify in the previous version of MPP. Um, Haitians were not one of the nationalities that Mexico allowed to be returned. Um, now, in this new iteration, we'll see. They have not yet told us which nationalities uh, Mexico will be accepting. Um, my guess, uh, and I have no insider information on this, but my guess is that Mexico accepting Haitians will be one of the discussions with Mexico. Yeah, and if we could talk about that event again, I mean, people were coming across the river because there's no way to come across a bridge or port, port of entry to even request asylum now, right? I mean, what's the current situation uh, regarding requesting asylum at the border? Exactly. I mean, there is no way for an individual arriving uh, at the border right now to to have to ask for protections without having to cross between ports of entry. So since March 2020, since uh, the pandemic began, CBP, because of Title 42, has not processed asylum seekers at ports of entry. This creates this really strange uh, perverse situation, and you saw this play out in Del Rio, where if you want to seek asylum, if you want to ask for protections from the United States government, you have to cross between ports of entry. You have to cross the river. You have to jump over the border wall and find a, a border patrol agent. I mean, these people, the Haitians in, in Del Rio and the other individuals who crossed, they crossed and then they waited. You know, they're not the migrants of you know, 20 years ago who would be, who are trying to all evade border patrol. These are individuals seeking protection. They cross, they wait to be processed. Um, and what's so interesting is that, you know, a couple of years ago in Ciudad Acuna, so that's on the other side of the river from Del Rio, there was also a camp of individuals seeking protection, but they waited on the Mexican side and waited kind of in the, in a list um, to cross through the port of entry to seek asylum. They did not you know, cross in mass into Del Rio like we saw recently. And that's because there was actually a legal pathway for them. So there was a way for them to wait and to cross in an orderly way. So what do you think will happen when uh, the administration finally ends um, Title 42? That is a great question. If I had the answer to that, <laughs> I would be... I would... Uh, I would, I would love to have the answer to that. Um, now, I think it, you know, it would have been different if you didn't have MPP going in place. But now you'll have a time, likely, unless the administration pulls down Title 42 in the next month, which it doesn't seem to be planning on doing, um, where you'll have this overlap of Title 42 and MPP. So I think that'll be an interesting period of who's put in Title 42 and expelled, who's put in MPP and sent back, how do these two programs, how are they going to work together at the border? Um, but I think MPP will kind of provide the way out uh, of Title 42 as well, because I imagine they'll put more and more families that were expelled on Title 42, they'll, they'll put them into MPP and send them to Mexico. So um, remain in Mexico obviously is very, uh, Mexico plays a very, very important role in the program. And I know in the previous program, Mexico promised all types of protections for people and families while they were waiting in Mexico, which did not 
happen. I know you've done work in Matamoros, uh, Reynosa. Uh, last week, the U.S. consulate in Matamoros put out a security advisory because there were gun battles going on in Matamoros. I mean, these are not safe places, as you as you described um, earlier, you know, with people being kidnapped. And I mean, are we going to see probably more of that occur where people are just going to be in danger as they wait in these Mexican cities? I don't think it'll be possible to avoid the insecurity, um, particularly in um, the South Texas cities. So Piedras Negras, Novo Laredo, and Matamoros. Those were the three cities where individuals were returned to under MPP last time. And uh, I imagine that, that the administration would, in their MPP restart, would return people to those cities again. It's hard to imagine any changes you could make to the program that would ensure security for individuals in these cities. Um, this is particularly the case because the U.S. government can't ensure security for its own government officials in these cities. Um, U.S. government officials working in these cities have curfews. They have specific areas they cannot go to. Um, they're not allowed to travel on roads in between these cities in certain cases. So, you know, these are particularly in South Texas, particularly in Tamaulipas, Nuevo Laredo, Matamoros. I mean, these are, are dangerous places. They're at the top of the U.S. State Department's don't travel list. Um, but yet, this are places where we're send, going to be sending thousands of families and including small children um, back to these cities and, and telling them to wait there for, for months on end. Um, now, you know, one of the projects actually that I'm working on currently is documenting kidnappings of people in uh, Nuevo Laredo who were returned to the city as part of MPP. And I have over 150 cases of individuals in the program who were returned back who were kidnapped. And 50% of the kidnapping victims were women, 40% were minors. Um, it's a pretty serious uh, epidemic, and these are only, you know, this is a very small percentage of the cases that I've been able to document um, because it's so difficult to, to find people um, to talk about, about kidnappings. Um, there is very little way that the U.S. government um, can protect people in these cities. It's going to be up to the Mexican government to do that. And what we saw the last time around is, as you mentioned, the Mexican government promised security, it promised employment, and it really wasn't able to guarantee these things. I mean, Mexico can't guarantee security to its own citizens. Um, how is it going to guarantee security to thousands of hyper-vulnerable uh, foreign nationals who are you know, entering into their cities with no social networks uh, and no resources? You know, and the administration has talked a lot about making this program more humane um, and finding ways to improve it. And all of that certainly will be better than the last time around. But I'm, I'm not sure that in some of these cities there is any way to humanely return people, um, particularly with organized crime that um, uses kidnapping migrants as one of the pillars of its revenue stream. Right, and then you have uh, Mexican officials who are off, often involved with organized crime, and so they're part of the actual problem when they're supposed to be preventing these kidnappings from happening. Exactly. If you're kidnapped in these cities, uh, who do you turn to? <laughs> Especially if you think, if you think that 
telling the police about your kidnapping is just going to get you in even more trouble. You're in a bad place if you're a migrant in these cities. You don't have social networks. You don't have friends or family to lean on. You are hyper vulnerable to exploitation by these criminal groups, and you don't really have any area for recourse or for protection. It's great that this is supposed to be a more humane version. I'm not quite sure there's a way to make a program humane when you can't guarantee basic um, security to individuals uh, or likely a fair due process either. Right. So with the with the return of the program, we're going to have thousands of people probably in tent camps in these cities, right? Uh, camping out. Uh, I guess some people stay in hotels, but are most people in, in tent camps waiting? Well, the last time the MPP was in place, you really only had one camp, and that was in Matamoros. Now, during wind down, during MPP wind down, the uh, Biden administration emptied out that camp. So that camp no longer exists. You could imagine that camp reforming in Matamoros. Um, currently, there's also a camp in Tijuana of individuals who returned to the city as part of Title 42, um, another program that expels people back to Mexico, um, and uh, other individuals who are waiting to try to access asylum. So right now, there is there is a camp in Tijuana, which will be one of the cities where people would be sent back to as part of MPP. You could definitely imagine the Tijuana camp getting larger. You could imagine even a camp forming in, in Ciudad Juarez across El Paso. Um, there are likely to be those cities like Nuevo Laredo or Piedras Negras, where it would be surprising to see camps form um, just because of the, the incredible insecurity levels. Uh, there's never been camps that have formed in either of those cities. Um, but yes, we probably will see the formation of camps and in cities where there already are camps, the increasing size of them. And then for those areas where it's too, it's too unsafe for them to, uh, to form camps, you'll see people kind of fleeing to other cities, surrounding cities like they did last time, um, trying to get out to Monterrey or other areas that take them further away from the border. Um, but again, if they, you know, had, they have to go back through those really dangerous cities to access their court dates. Um, so they, there, there really is no, no uh, guaranteed safety over the long term. So it's very disturbing that people are just being, you know, these are vulnerable asylum seekers who are being handed over to organized crime, essentially. Can you talk about a typical uh, kidnapping situation that you've studied? What, what happens? In Nuevo Laredo, which is the city that I've focused on the most, and the reason I'm most curious about that city is because it's incredibly systematic in how they kidnap people. And the way that looks is you have uh, individuals being returned to Mexico. They walk across the bridge. They receive paperwork from Mexico's National Immigration Institute, and that paperwork gives them legal status in Mexico. But then the moment they step out of that office, they are targeted by uh, criminals, members of organized crime who wait outside. Um, they can spot them because they're not wearing shoelaces because anyone in CBP custody doesn't have sh- has their shoelaces taken away from them. So it's very easy to see who's returning back. Um, there's also allegations that members of INM, Mexico's National Immigration Institute, also those who might be working with the organized crime might tip off uh, the criminal organizations about who is coming back and uh, where, you know, where they're going. Um, once these individuals leave the immigration office, 
being kidnapped within a few blocks uh, is, is really common. They might be walking to a local shelter. They might be trying to figure out a way to get to the bus station to leave the city because they know it's dangerous. Um, and while they're trying to kind of figure out and find their way, um, the most common modus operandi is a truck pulls up, armed men jump out, force the asylum seekers into a truck, take them to a stash house, and they are asked for a U.S. contact. That U.S. contact is uh, receives a phone call, usually asking for somewhere between seven and $10,000 per person for their release, and asking that that money be sent to a series of uh, kind of broken up into small chunks and sent to a series of bank accounts in the city to be picked up, wire transfers. And if they receive that money, that, you, that person receives a password um, and is released. And that way, if they're found again on the streets of Novo Laredo, they give the password as kind of a, a proof that they have been kidnapped and have already paid uh, the cartel and have been kidnapped at least once. So that is actually a really common uh, scenario uh, that people who work in civil society in Nuevo Laredo estimate that 40 to 60% of the people who are returned are kidnapped. Um, so this is really an enormous business that, that's going on right now in that city. And what if you don't have the money? What if your family can't pay? What happens? There's a few different scenarios, um, but you don't receive a password. Usually the people are released, not always, but usually. Um, and they might be put on a bus and told to leave town um, and to never come back. Uh, there's a couple isolated cases of people who didn't pay being actually dropped back on the U.S. side of the border, which seems strange and counterintuitive. But I've heard from uh, Border Patrol that they think that they drop those people uh, as kind of a decoy to distract Border Patrol as, they, as these groups try to move drugs or people in another part of the border. So they might be using them to further their own um, income generating activities in other ways. Um, they might just kick them out of the city and say, never come back. If you come back, something terrible will happen to you. Um, and then there are you know, isolated cases of, of, pe of people who didn't pay kind of disappearing into this criminal underworld. And, and you don't know if they're being forced to work for them uh, to pay the money or if they were killed. Um, some of those people just disappear and are never heard from again. So I'm not hearing a lot of good news for the border in the future. It seems like we have more dark, confusing times ahead of us. I think there are some interesting ideas, you know, moving forward. And you have the asylum regulation, which would allow asylum officers at the border to uh, have affirmative asylum hearings, kind of quicker USCIS adjudications rather than the defensive asylum adjudication process where individuals have to go in front of a court. So there are these, these new changes that would streamline the system, which would um, make things go quicker, would turn it into an administrative process rather than uh, kind of formal judicial proceedings. However, I think overall, uh, we're still, we're looking at perhaps a, a bleak uh, next few months. Certainly, uh, while we don't have a, a plan for how that um, affirmative asylum processing would be used and in what ways. Uh, we're looking at Title 42 combined with a new uh, MPP uh, and a still a lack of asylum processing at ports of entry. So I think, I think you're correct in saying it, it's probably going to be a, a confusing 
and a um, somewhat bleak next few months uh, while we have all these programs operating simultaneously. Wow. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for uh, talking to me today and sort of shedding light on this very sort of confusing scenario that we have at the border right now, where it's really hard to tell exactly what's going on. So I appreciate you uh, illuminating us and uh, explaining the various programs. Of course. Thanks so much for having me.